So as people are battling 45 in the United States, Brexit is also having this clash about the browning of their country. Hi, from The Griot, I'm your co-host, Dr. Christina Greer, and today we have a special guest co-host. I'm Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean, professor of political science, and you're listening to What's In It For Us. I'm so excited to have you here for Women's History Month, Dr. Brown-Dean, my dear sister in political science. So today we're talking about Derek Chauvin and the trial in Minneapolis, proper jury selection, this preparation for quote-unquote riots. And I definitely wanted to hear what you had to say, especially since so much of your scholarship has dealt with this type of American politic. And then secondly, we're going to revisit Selma. And it's our first anniversary of Selma without the late, great John Lewis. So what say you, Dr. Brown-Dean? I think the thing that binds those two pieces together is that in the United States, Black folks are still treated as defendants, that we still have to prove our worth and that we still are treated as if we are somehow complicit in our harm. So whether we're talking about Minneapolis or voting rights, we have to really dig into that and figure out what we do for ourselves because the system will not save us. Mm. And as always, we'll be asking the question, what's in it for us? Okay, a little new transition music there. So today for our hot topic, we had two things to talk about, Dr. Brandeen. That's Coming to America too, and Meghan and Harry and Oprah. So let's start with Coming to America. So essentially, for those people who know me, Kalila, they know that I was obsessed with this movie when it came out in 1988. So much so that I wrote a book called Black Ethnics, colon, Race, Immigration, and the Pursuit of the American Dream, basically as an homage to this highly problematic 80s movie of all these Black people pretending to be Africans from a fake African country coming to Queens. I was born in Queens, so I felt very much attached to it. Then 33 years later, they decide to make a sequel. And I feel like we've moved in a different direction when it comes to our understanding of quote unquote Africa and the 54 countries on the continent. Zamunda and Wakanda not included and Nextoria, which is the name of a new country that they made up in the sequel. And this idea that Black Americans put on these fake quasi British African accents and create a movie where I know it's supposed to be fun, but I was very concerned. And Kenya Burris was behind it, and I have some thoughts on his work every now and again. So where were you coming from? Were you super excited? Were you dressing up? Were you making sure this was something you had to do? I mean, it's cameos on cameos. Wesley Snipes is out of prison. He's in it. We've got a whole bunch going on. What are your thoughts? The fact that I haven't yet seen the film should give you some indication. I'm a purist. I think very few sequels are ever as good as the original, whether we're talking about movies or books or we're talking about songs. And so in that way, I was kind of nervous. Like I wanted to hold on to that nostalgia. That said, I think we're in a time where Black folks need a space to just breathe, to just relax and to have fun and laugh. Mm. And if we are able to watch a film that is completely ridiculous and laugh, I don't want to take that away. But I also know, as you just said, where we are today is not where we were 33 years ago and understanding the diaspora and understanding that some of the greatest culture, the greatest history, the greatest innovation is on the continent. And to portray it as these backwards people who are just trotting out all these stereotypes about women, about gender, we're better than that. But it also means that there's still a lot of learning that people have to do. And I think this film could perhaps be a way to start that conversation, along with your book, of course. 
Right. Well, I think it's, it was interesting because we had Black Panther and Wakanda for people who have a critical eye. It's like, does this feel like we're going backwards? We have people who are literally dressed up, ready for war and like literally machetes, a step above Oogaboo type chanting. It was just sort of like, OK, first of all, Ruth Carter, she did it again. The costumes were incredible. It was this interesting dynamic of Black Americans and quote unquote Africans from Zamunda. So we still have this clash of the cultures. But I do hear you and I try and take off my professor hat sometimes and just like sit down. Sometimes things don't have to make sense. Sometimes they can just be funny. I agree with you. I know you and Jason Johnson go way back from college days, but we always debate as to like, what's a good sequel? You can think about like 48 Hours or like Beverly Hills Cop or whatever it may be. I'm never satisfied with a sequel, no matter what. So especially one that's maybe 33 years later, and it just feels like I was in a totally different headspace than I was. And some of the jokes for me were just like, I knew exactly where they were going. The things that you find funny today are not the things that you found funny as a teenager or a preteen where there was something kind of taboo about the comedy. You know, my friends and I still laugh about that scene in the nightclub where all of the women are coming to sit down with Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall and she's beatboxing to Peaches. That's one thing. But think about the backlash toward Black Panther and Wakanda. And a lot of our friends like to write think pieces about thinking that should probably just stay a social media post and not an actual think piece where people were saying this is why African-Americans think that they're better than Africans and this is why we need to think about cultural appropriation because people showed up in these beautiful fabrics even if they didn't understand the meaning of kente Mm -hmm. or how it relates to particular cultures there's a distinction between appropriating a culture and trying to celebrate it. We're not the Kardashians out here in cornrows trying to pretend like we discovered something that I've been wearing since I was two before Felicia started rocking it and Friday. But that's an in-house conversation we need to have because how we respond is different from how other folks interpret it. Well, I think you bring up a really interesting and necessary point in which we tend to struggle with these days. And I really struggle with it writing Black ethnics. The conversations that we need to have as Black people and then the conversations that we don't want to have with others around because we still have to work out some of our stuff. We still actually do need to work out some of our relationships with Africans, with Caribbeans on American soil and the assumptions that Black Americans aren't as smart or hardworking or diligent. These assumptions that are made in the workplace or in the schoolhouse about which group is smarter and has more of a capacity to do STEM or it comes from a broken home or whatever it may be. And these are some hard conversations that go in multiple directions that we need to suss out. And it's difficult, I think, sometimes when we have these added external forces, not just white folks, but movies like even Black Panther, but Coming to America too, where there aren't any Africans in the movie by and large. And it's kind of make believe. But then a lot of people in the midst of COVID and unemployment and everything else needed some slap and it felt very slapstick, more so than the first coming to America very slapstick comedy. But maybe that's in 2021, what folks need on a Friday night on Amazon Prime to just sit back and it's like, okay, is it highbrow? No. Are you going to laugh really hard at certain scenes? Absolutely. And I think we need to have a conversation about colorism, Mm. but that's not a conversation that I want to have with everybody else that we keep inviting to the cookout. The seasoning is different when you are cooking for your family versus when you are cooking to make it palatable to anyone who may show up at 
at your house for that. And that's the other piece, too, about the challenge of pop culture is how things play out and then how you have to interpret it. Because I want to talk about colorism without having other people think that makes it okay for them to treat people differently. It's the same thing with, oh, you say the N-word. Why shouldn't we be able to? Full stop. You just can't. Full stop. Because you can't. That's a beautiful transition because these conversations that we need slash want to have without the white gaze, I'm just going to put it out there, are so necessary, but they are really difficult to have across the diaspora, across the country, across class, across race and ethnicity. And then you have something that happened earlier this week where Meghan Markle sits down with her prince husband and they speak to arguably the most powerful Black woman in the country, dare I say the world, Oprah Winfrey, and have a conversation about Meghan Markle and her feelings of suicidal ideologies, not really knowing what she was getting into, joining the royal family. I'm like, I don't know. It's pretty detailed in the history books what they're capable of. But also this idea that colorism is what allowed Meghan Markle to become the princess in the first place. Because trust and believe, Chrissy Greer and Kalila Brown-Dean with our natural hair and non-biracial features, we wouldn't even be able to be in that conversation to be Harry's paramour. But also the fact that she does have a Black mama with locks who was at the wedding is now the problem of baby Archie not getting the title, baby Archie not getting protection. And the two of them essentially saying, we're running away to America because this country, these tabloids just aren't for us. And I find that so fascinating, this idea of Blackness that we still need to have that conversation about the varying levels of privilege that Meghan Markle is allowed to have. But then at the same time, she's treated like a Black girl. So which one, like, it can be both and. Well, I want to start by being very clear. The only prince that we recognize in this household is Prince Rogers Nelson. There we go. But putting that aside, because you know I'm a big Prince fan and I still listen to his music every day. Putting that aside... The thing you just said, I feel, really stood out to me. That because of her lack of melanin, she was able to gain entree into what she calls the institution and the establishment. But why are you surprised then people are concerned about how dark your baby will be, about how curly that baby's hair will be, when this is a monarchy that was built on the exploitation, the use of violence against nations of color in order to expand their crown? Across the globe, too. Not just like, oh, we dabbled in a country. It's like, no, 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 no. We were on continents plural doing this. And continue to be. And even when Prince Harry said, oh, well, when we said we wanted to take a step back, we gave a number of countries where we could go for our respite. And they mentioned South Africa and New Zealand, where we see the ongoing imprint. That long arm of the empire. Continuing. And how it has marginalized people who are indigenous to the very nation that is fighting for their independence. That's the backdrop. What it also means is that even for a woman like Meghan Markle, who has had all of those advantages, we still see how globally black skin is viewed as a threat no matter how melanated it is or is not. And that's why I feel some sympathy for her because I know that experience, particularly for women, black women across the globe. I think having spent a lot of time in London over the past 20 some odd years, lived there for a year, knowing a little bit about their tabloid press and how it is different from the United States, mm-hmm. how their views of race is very different for those people who saw small acts. I was Stephen Queen. Yeah. Just giving you a little window in 
into Black Britain just a touch and how they view race and racism and the relationship with the descendants of their colonial conquest, Jamaicans that are now in London and various Africans who live there as well. I did feel thinking about the tabloids and how their ire and their focus is on Meghan Markle and every single thing she said, even when she was telling the honest to goodness truth. But we have zero word for Prince Andrew, who pals around and plays footsie and is on airplanes with noted pedophiles. Pedophiles, plural. Right. And that's okay. For years. That's fine. But a Black woman saying, I asked for help and didn't receive it, is a bridge too far. A Black woman saying, listen, these people who work for me aren't doing a good job, so I had to call them out. And it's like, she's too demanding. Reading some of those headlines about how demanding and pushy and bratty and spoiled she was, when she was literally just asking, please treat me like I'm a grown professional. If this is the firm, act like I'm the princess, because you know you're not doing this with Kate. You wouldn't dare do it with Kate. So figure it out. And thinking about all the ways that we have been in professional settings where we have asked for sometimes the bare minimum, right? I'm thinking about when I taught at a particular university and the support staff just could not wrap their minds around the fact that they had to treat me like the older white male professors. So it's like, if I asked for something, it was like, well, I mean, can't you do it? Ma'am, excuse me, I'm a professor here just like Bob, Jim, John, all those cats. Exactly. I earned it. Give me my title. Give me everything that I've earned. And I think about the broader context that this is unfolding. Lest we forget, Brexit was not about what form of government they wanted. Brexit was about, we are concerned that all of these brown immigrants are moving into the country are staying, are creating families, creating jobs, creating opportunities. And we are fearful of what that diversity will mean. That's the context. So as people are battling 45 in the United States, Brexit is also having this clash about the browning of their country. And let's also be clear, Black folks have always been in that family, even when they were not acknowledged. Talk about it. Talk about it. If Thomas Jefferson is teetering into the headquarters of Sally Hemings, we know that other members of that dynasty are doing that in England as well. But in that context where you are remaining silent about the rise in hate crimes against people in your own country, and now you have this Black woman from America, no less, coming over and daring capture this Prize, all of that comes together. And the thing that I think is also problematic, even if the queen did not actively participate in that, being silent is complicit. Mm-hmm. Whether we are talking about Andrew or we are talking about someone in the family, I think we know who asked just how dark will that baby be. To be silent is to further that violence that we know from Princess Diana can literally lead to the loss of someone's life. Well, I think that's what's so interesting, too, because we're seeing now a grown Harry who's had his own racial ups and downs, but clearly he's emerged on the other side, it appears. But like, there's a burning anger that I see in him about, you've taken my mother, you will not take my wife and my child as well. You mentioning sort of the browning of England. Keep in mind, the UK can fit inside of Florida geographically, just to give us some space. But this browning and blackening of the UK is because the descendants of your colonial conquest. You all have reaped this 21st century darkening of your country. You all were the ones who needed sugar and spice and all these things around the world. And now the chickens have proverbially come to roost and you have an issue, Madam Queen and son. I don't know. Do they eat chicken in the family that I think it would be like Cornish hens or something? The Cornish hens have come to roost, darling. The Cornish hens have come to roost. Don't you (laughs) love how that happens? Mm -hmm. And it always does. 
when she said that this is an institution that is in bed with the very tabloid press that they claim to not like. And to hear that the tabloids are having events and holiday celebrations within the castle, so to speak, it lets you know that the same ways in which people court press, even when it's not good, and court publicity also means they have the power to frame how those stories are told. And it's why I think Megan pulled out every receipt, regardless of how you feel about her. She pulled out every receipt. And it's interesting that the attacks that she has weathered from people who are either within the institution or adjacent to it. I'm talking about you, Piers Morgan, because clearly being rejected after a drink has you in your feelings deeply. No one has addressed the exact comments she made. Instead, they are trying to make her out to be this angry, difficult woman. And so as we think about Megan, as we think about movies, we will always continue to think about what is in it for us. So, KBD, I wanted you on this episode because the Derek Chauvin trial is coming up. And for our listeners to know, Derek Chauvin is the police officer who sat on George Floyd's neck and ultimately led to his death. And it has infuriated me because I had read some headlines that said the George Floyd trial is starting. And George Floyd is not on trial because George Floyd is dead. Also, George Floyd did nothing. Whether it was a counterfeit $20 bill, that is not a punishable by death crime. There is no George Floyd trial. This is a Derek Chauvin trial that has been pushed back because they're possibly going to bring some higher charges against him. But I wanted to bring you on because I know that you've looked at prisons and incarceration and policing. I just wanted to have you talk a little bit and contextualize the National Guard that's coming in, the barbed wire that's all around Minneapolis, the preparation for riots and borderline war when we know on January 6th, they had all the information that these folks were coming to Washington, D.C., a black city. And we're just like, oh, we didn't know. So now all of a sudden we are armed to the teeth waiting for this trial to begin. And I think for me, there's that piece. And then I think the last piece I want you to touch on is so many black folks don't want to do jury duty. So many people don't want to do jury duty. And I get it. It's time away. You get $7. You barely get time for lunch. All those things. But it is so important for us to understand now. We've been pounding the alarm about voting. I've been talking a lot about fair fight and Stacey Abrams, all that amazing work. But there has to be some sort of PSA campaign for us to recognize that being on these juries, as inconvenient as they may be, it is essential for us to chip away one step closer to our citizenship and a step closer towards democracy. Because if we aren't on these juries, we're going to get actually the need for this barbed wire because Black folks will be enraged as they should be for another justice denied encounter where we had to watch Black death and then just nothing comes of it. So where are you feeling? How are you feeling on the eve of this trial for Derek Chauvin? So you know that my personal mantra is protect your peace. Yes, girl. Thank you. And I say that I speak it over myself every day, but I share with my friends too, because you have to know your limits. And Black death in this country has become public spectacle, just as it was in the 1940s when people were being lynched and bringing their picnic baskets to hold parties so that children could gawk at the bodies of Black men, women, and children. 
who were being publicly lynched. That kind of exposure to trauma seeps into your soul. It seeps into your spirit. And at some point, you start believing the images that you are repeatedly exposed to. As you said, George Floyd is not on trial. His family is not on trial. The person who is on trial and should be held accountable is that police officer. So we have to stop treating victims of violence and racial injustice as if they have to defend why they did not deserve to die. And one way that we refuse to be complicit in that narrative is, as you said, serving on those juries so that in places like Connecticut and other states, jury pools are pulled from voter registration rolls. So if you feel like either party doesn't represent you, that's fine. I probably agree with you. If you feel like your vote doesn't matter, even though we've witnessed over the last six months just why it does, still register to vote because you put your name in there. And hopefully it won't be another extreme case where we had to watch a man die and beg for his life. And his mama. As a mother, it broke my heart. And I still have not been able to watch the full video because I physically could feel myself shut down when I heard that. But if it's not a George Floyd that you are on a jury to support, look, we all know someone in our family who has found themselves on the other side of the law, whether by force or by choice. And to be able to stand up and say, for this thing to get right, we have to be at the table so that we raise the issues, raise the questions and try to get toward fairness. The other thing I'll say is you talked about January 6th. To say I'm disgusted is probably an understatement that these were armed insurrectionists, seditionists, treasonous people who broadcast that they were coming to D.C. and dared the government to stop them. And what did we see? People taking selfies with them and then blaming the Black woman mayor of D.C. for not doing more, even though she is hamstrung by this thing called the Constitution. The same thing we saw in Ferguson when we knew that verdict was coming. The same thing we saw in Kentucky when we knew charges would not be filed. We are seeing that now in Minneapolis. And at some point, we have to come together and say no longer, not just for George Floyd, but also for the countless men, women and children who have died and their names never make the newspaper. So what would you suggest our listeners do, Kalila? Because you do a lot of this work. You've been writing about this for a long time and I've stolen your mantra. I've tweeted you about it constantly. Guard your peace, protect your peace. What should we be doing in these next few weeks when hopefully it will get some media attention because it is important. We have to make sure the jury knows that there are eyes on this trial. So as we hear about it, what should we be doing to protect our peace, but also still be participants in making sure there is some justice served for George Floyd and George Floyd as a proxy for all the other Black women, men, and children who have not received justice from this criminal justice system in the United States? One thing we need to do is to be selective about our media sources. I am a key cheerleader and advocate for Black media outlets, not just Black-owned media outlets, but Black media voices writ large, because I believe that they bring angles and perspectives and nuance that is needed to help pull those pieces together. Look, you don't have to be an expert in the criminal justice system or the legal process to know exactly what's going to happen, but I want you to listen to a Dr. Greer or Dr. Johnson or someone else to see how those pieces fit together. That's one. Two, I think we vote with our dollars, especially in this pandemic, when no matter what you see in Atlanta during All-Star Weekend, we are still in the middle of a whole pandemic Mm. that is disproportionately killing us. 
So that means we vote with our dollars. We invest in community-led organizations in Minneapolis, in Kentucky, in your hometown, wherever you are, who are doing the work and aren't doing the work for likes and going viral and for clicks, but are doing the viral because they have built the relationship with community. That's how we support. And the third thing we have to do, unfortunately, in this country is prepare ourselves for the next time that this happens, because that's the reality. We aren't where we need to be, but we have to have conversations, especially with young people who are saying, you all have been fighting this fight for years and for decades. Why tell me that you believe Black Lives Matter when you show me every day that you don't value it? And that means whether it's at the hands of a police officer or at the hands of somebody that lives across the street, we have to have those tough conversations together. Well, I am trying to hold Minneapolis. It's interesting how you started off talking about Prince. And as an urbanist, so much of where you live really does imprint on who you are as a person. The folks in Minneapolis, folks in Minnesota writ large, when we think about what they've gone through with varying levels of police brutality, Alton Sterling, George Floyd, all the cases that don't even make it to the national news. And then the backdrop of having someone, Prince dabbled in civil rights in Minneapolis quite a bit. And so having that loss of a voice and a fighter, it's a collective trauma for that community. And I still thinking about all the different ways that we can not just hold space for them, but let them know that the Black folks in Brooklyn, the Black folks in New Haven, the Black folks in D.C. are supporting them in a time that we know is going to possibly show us yet again who this country really is. The fact that we have the plexiglass and the barbed wire and the 1,000 members of the National Guard just waiting. Waiting for what? Because you weren't waiting on January 6th, but now you're waiting in Minneapolis. When we're just going through jury selection, that's what you're waiting for. So I think this country very rarely surprises me, but I am really struggling with how do I pay attention and be involved as a scholar and as someone you and I both write about these things for public audiences, but then also living the Kalila Brown Dean mantra, which is guarding my peace simultaneously. These things are affecting us. The backdrop of all this also is over a half a million Americans are dead from COVID, disproportionately Black people. That's still in the back of my mind too. To say nothing of Breonna Taylor, And I'm still thinking about Trayvon Martin. I'm still thinking about Mike Brown. So I just feel like we're holding a lot while we're also trying to keep our jobs together, trying to hold our families together and move forward as though it's normal. And in sad ways, this is kind of normal America. You must be able to function, survive and thrive simultaneously with the backdrop of Black death. That's as American as apple pie. You have to be willing to say that as much as I am sick and tired of this pandemic and all of the things that it has brought, we gave up alcohol for Lent. Same, same girl. And my friend said, haven't you given up enough over the last year? (laughs) And I thought, you know what, sis, you're absolutely right. One thing that I hope we learned over this last year is that normal was not working for large groups of people, primarily people who look like us. And as we talk about going back to normal, let this be a moment where we say we can never go back. There is something fundamentally humanly wrong with watching another human being beg for their right to simply be and exist. And I believe in due process. I believe that if people do things, they should be held accountable for that. And there's a process for that. But you don't get to be judge, jury, and executioner on a street corner, nor do you get to tell me 
how I should mourn and how I should express that resentment that so many people feel. My fear, however, is that at some point, Black folks get so tired that they disengage or that they start to internalize that. It's a lot to think about. I've got to worry about these super spreader events that are happening. And I've got to be fearful about whether my people will be able to get access to vaccines. Oh, and now I have to worry about some idiot who watched that video and thought it would be cute to say something derogatory, making it onto a jury. Mm -hmm. There's a lot there, but I'm also a proponent of help. It is possible to have Jesus and a therapist. And whatever Black folks need to do to get the help and to be able to say the things that they're feeling, let this be a moment when we do it. What you bring up is this longevity of survival tactics that Black people have had to employ. And I, too, gave up alcohol for Lent. And some friends of mine are like, girl, what in the world are you thinking? And I'm just like, well, I need some clarity. I also need to make sure I can always still do it. Those are the things where it's like the time that I can't give up alcohol for 46 days. We got a larger issue to talk about. So it's good to check in. I'm not 20 anymore. We'll get through it together, my friend. Yes, yes. We'll celebrate on Easter. Easter's always a wild day for me. <laughs> yes, I <laughs> celebrate. But but I always think about being Black in this country as an endurance run. I never liked cross country. I was never the person where we had to run two miles and field hockey or lacrosse. I was like, can I just sprint for the next 45 minutes? I can do sprints, but I cannot do long distance running. But to survive and thrive in this country, it's nothing but a cross country long distance run. And so I was thinking a lot about the anniversary of Selma. And I know that you've been to Selma. I've seen you talk about it in different capacities. And I believe I saw you wrote something about it at the big anniversary. We've suffered a lot of loss in the past year, as you mentioned. And one of the losses was that of John Lewis. For so many people, especially our generation, to think of Selma is to think of John Lewis, to think of a young John Lewis with his backpack being beaten, seeing all that America is on display. Someone who's willing to fight and die for this country as a true patriot, someone who's willing to kill for this country to maintain their own way of life. Both of those things are true in America. How are you processing this anniversary of Selma and John Lewis's passing? Because it sort of seems like we're reliving his passing again with this anniversary of Selma. This one was tough for me. As you mentioned, I was in Selma for the 50th anniversary celebration, had co-authored this national report about voting rights, and we were invited to go to that Jubilee celebration. I'm an academic. Much of what we do exists in a bubble. But to be able to go to Selma, to have John Lewis mouth thank you because he had read our report mm. and he appreciated that we were using our scholarly training to further the movement to protect access to voting. I thought if I never do another thing in my life, I will always cling to that. And so this one was tough because so much of Selma, but the broader quest for voting rights, not just for Black folks, but for all Americans. This is a man who had his skull fractured, who was beaten, who was attacked by dogs and sent to the same hospital where Jimmy Lee Jackson was sent to die because Jimmy Lee Jackson was a veteran who came back and wanted to vote. Establish democracy abroad, fight for democracy abroad, but you Black man veteran can't vote in your home state. Jimmy Lee Jackson had been shot in the stomach by a state trooper and left to die. And so understanding that John Lewis gave his whole life to democracy, even when it was denied, and in the days before he died, passing the torch to say to young people, I see you and I believe in you. 
that's convicting. Because at the same time that we honor John Lewis bringing 600 people to Selma to march for voting rights, where we are today is that there are over 600 bills in states across this country designed to undermine access to voting. That's when we know there's more work to be done. And that work did not die with John Lewis, but it has to live with each of us. Just yesterday, we saw the Georgia State House passing legislation that will take away absentee ballot voting, making it much more difficult for people to have basically no excuse absentee ballot voting, making sort of more voter ID provisions, essentially just making it much more difficult for the 1.3 million folks who were sort of new registrants in these past two election cycles. And some of those folks were Republicans. 450,000 of those 1.3 million were Republicans. It's like, we don't care if we're taking away some of our own voters. We'll gladly take away more Democrats. I think it's also interesting that John Lewis is from the state of Georgia. And we see Georgia, the place where Stacey Abrams has worked diligently for over 10 years to live up to this John Lewis legacy. And then right after his death, we see Republicans saying, oh, we're so sad. Oh, what a loss. A great American patriot and hero. Let me just go and try and pass legislation that is the antithesis of everything that John Lewis fought for decades of his life. Every member of Congress who sent or wrote a letter of condolence, who spoke of John Lewis as this great American statesman and as a colleague, every one of those people who voted against protecting the most simplest tool of American democracy should be voted out and someone should stand up to run against them. I felt the same way when Kelly Leffler was trying to paint uh, then Reverend Raphael Warnock, who was her candidate, as someone who was this great threat even though the person who she was replacing had been at his church and spoke many times about his work, the very church where Congressman John Lewis was eulogized. And so the ways in which people try to paint Black religion and Black patriotism as a threat to democracy, when what we know is that women like Amelia Boynton, Viola Luzzo, and so many others gave their life to democracy. The work has to be done, and we can't be content with one election, and certainly not one candidate. Mm -hmm. Because if people are willing to take the opportunity away from their own voters who got them into office. What are they willing to do to us? Completely. What I think also always inspires me about John Lewis and Selma is that at the time, John Lewis was a member of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And the young people, and we both have the privilege of working with young people on a daily basis as college professors. But these are folks where they were in their late teens, early 20s, literally willing to die to move forward the cause of civil rights. And not just for Black people, because let's also be clear, there are many a group that has all the benefits with none of these burdens. They have coasted on the backs of Black sacrifice and death. And these young people were willing to sacrifice their lives even for that. It's like, okay, that's just one of the ways that we will move forward. And we're fine with that. We accept that this may be our fate because we have seen what this country will do to Black people. They will kill us. It doesn't matter that we're children. It doesn't matter that we still are living in our mama's houses. That means nothing to these men in their billy clubs and their dogs and their hoses. And that, to me, the bravery and the courage of someone like John Lewis and so many of the other SNCC and core SCLC members that just time and time again put themselves out there for us, literally, so we can pontificate and write reports and teach the next generation about these things. And benefit. We have an obligation to tell those stories, or as John Hope Franklin said, to tell the unvarnished truth. 
because those elders are making their transition and we can't afford to allow those stories to die with them. People were risking their lives. But as educators, you and I also know they were being threatened with expulsion from their colleges and universities. Some HBCUs who said, by you doing this, you are tarnishing the image that we know is necessary because they don't want us here anyway. Now you're making it more difficult to find something that you believe in that much. That's the same energy I saw with young people who were marching in Minneapolis last summer across racial lines, across gender identity to say, we're going to grab hands and protect this building, even though anytime we go into this building, they follow us and track us, not because we want to support the building, but because we will not allow you to destroy it and undermine the vision and purpose that we are really fighting for. Every movement for freedom in this country has been led by young people. Mm -hmm. And it makes me excited to see what that new movement or that next journey in the movement will be. And as we do that, we also have to respect and honor our elders. And just quickly, let's start by doing that, by getting away of that phrase, I am not my ancestors. Because I don't know about anybody else's. Our ancestors were completely in it. Oh, I adore you so much. I am so proud to be your sister in political science. And yes, for all of our listeners, for all the AKAs out there, yes, you can fangirl out because Dr. Brown Dean is an AKA. And I just appreciate you joining me today to help us figure out what's in it for us, past, present, and future. So I got to ask you, what is next for you? Please tell us about this podcast and anything else that you're working on. So two quick things. I host a radio show and podcast called Disrupted for Connecticut Public Radio and Dr. Greer has been on the show and all my listeners love her. So I hope she will come back. And I'm also finishing up a book with Ray Block Jr. And it's called Protesting Vulnerability about race and pandemic politics. And that will be out later this year. So just keep doing what you're doing, Dr. Greer. We appreciate you and you know how proud I am of you. Listen, I appreciate you. And just this is like the fangirl moment. I am so proud and honored to be your sister in political science. And I just thank you so much for coming on the show. Please promise me you'll come back. Of course. Okay. Thank you for listening to What's In It For Us. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to podcasts at thegrio.com. The What's In It For Us podcast is brought to you by The Grio, an executive produced by Kevin Y. Brown and produced by Abdul Kadoos. <laughs>